Welcome to Intermittent Signal. I'm David A. Westbrook. This is episode number six, Keeping the Feast in Lawrence, Kansas. Tonight, and it's always night in here, I want to talk about situation and place and time. Directly, but moreover, elliptically. A middle-aged couple's first Easter without children is not exactly a child's Christmas in Wales, but everyone has to be someplace, sometime. What can we say about this? Well, let's try. I'm in Lawrence, Kansas, an oddly meaningful town. It's now best known as the home of the University of Kansas, chartered in 1864, a basketball mecca. In fact, Lawrence is where the inventor of basketball, the Canadian James A. Naismith, last coached and died. As well as a mecca of college basketball, Lawrence has come to see itself as the sci-fi capital of the world, a center for fantasy games and the like. Such things may not matter much in the grand scheme of things. This is not Paris or London or even St. Louis. But it is a place with stories. My own presence in Lawrence seems somewhat random to me, but I suppose lots of folks are used to being washed up here or there by corporate reassignment, military posting, or what have you. Come to think of it, my presence pretty much anywhere has come to seem somewhat random. Perhaps one can travel too much. Be that as it may, over a decade ago, Amy received a great offer down the road in Topeka, hard by the school at issue in Brown v. Board of Education, and so we moved the family. Bizarre. Fortunately, Lawrence is exceedingly pleasant and a great place to raise kids. Speaking of Lawrence and wives, but not pleasantly at all, Lawrence is also where William S. Burroughs lived out his days, long after writing Naked Lunch and other books that made him a figure of some notoriety, and also after shooting his wife Joan in Mexico in what may or may not have been an accident, whatever accident might mean in the context of Burroughs' drug use. The endlessly contested story goes that the couple was acting out the William Tell scene, the wife placing a highball glass on her head, the husband shooting. In the Swiss version, a father hit an apple placed upon his son's head with a crossbow bolt, successfully missing the boy, and thereupon killed the tyrant who thought up the spectacle for his own sport. In the counterculture American version, the spectacle appears to have been its own reward. French intellectuals nod sagely at this point. The husband missed, maybe, but at any rate hit his wife in the head and was charged with murder by the Mexicans. Burroughs claimed he dropped the gun and it went off and the bullet. Legal shenanigans and bribery ensued. Burroughs escaped and was convicted in absentia. He bummed around South America looking for exotic drugs, returned to the U.S., went to Europe, to the Tangier International Zone, and so forth. Burroughs remained a kind of celebrity among a certain cut of intellectuals, an odd success I've discussed elsewhere but will not hear. He lived to be 83, astonishing in light of all the heroin, dying only in 1997. Practically speaking, though, for much of his life, Burroughs was a pampered child of St. Louis money, a rake on an income, to sound English. And so Kansas was a kind of return. Burroughs spent his last years here in Lawrence, drinking at a downtown watering hole called the Bourgeois Pig, which still stands. In fine weather, one may sit outside and watch the town go by. I had an espresso there a few days ago. Lawrence sits on the banks of the broad and muddy Kansas River, or Caw, which flows roughly eastward to join the Missouri at Kansas City, whence Lewis and Clark set out. It's supposed to be the longest river in the world that flows entirely through plains. Maybe it is. Caws derived from Kanza, various spellings, the people of the south wind, from which the state also gets its name. Before moving here, I had never lived any place with a wind out of the south, except as the van of a storm, and it still disturbs me when the south wind blows. The Caw, a relative of the Osage people, were much admired, said to be handsome, generous, and brave. 
Never numerous, the call were based along the river, upstream from Lawrence around what is now Topeka, past the point of transition from where the mixed forest bottomlands and prairie from the French for meadow gave way to the treeless expanse of the Great Plains, a transition that can still be on I-70, further west than it used to be. Traditionally, the call farmed and journeyed out into what is now western Kansas to hunt the plentiful buffalo. They were often at war with the Plains tribes, but retained close relations with their kin, the Osage. After the coming of the white man in numbers, the history of the tribe is fairly typical, sad in familiar ways, albeit not especially brutal as such stories go. The call were pushed about Kansas and eventually were removed to Oklahoma. For a while, it looked like the tribe would disappear altogether, but its fortunes have revived somewhat in recent years. Tribal government has been reestablished, and language classes are now offered. Evidently, however, neither full-blooded call nor native speakers remain. I sometimes think of the call when I'm sitting on the deck at night, listening to the forest and the spooky warm wind blows. This forest here is new. The Europeans started cutting trees as soon as they landed on the Atlantic beach, and they kept cutting trees as they moved westward. When a true frontiersman could hear the sound of a neighbor's axe, the land was too settled and it was time to move on, or so it was said. But what if there were no trees? On the vast grasslands of the middle of the continent, drought, fire, the buffalo and the wind conspired to keep trees from growing, except in protected places. It is disorienting, placeless, and the wind blows. My wife and I found a certain minimalist beauty out on the plains, away from the clutter, but our son, reared in the secondary growth of western New York, positively hated the swelling grassland, where there was no way to locate oneself. Confronted with the grasslands, the Europeans began planting trees, watering them and protecting them from fire and animals. They thus moved the forest westward. Farther west, where forests are impossible and the dry farms extend for hundreds and even thousands of acres, trees are planted around homesteads and laboriously tended. These islands of trees, or oases to flip the image, are visible for miles across the high plains, comfort against the wind and the dust, but maybe mostly comfort against the fear of being nowhere, exposed, under the sheltering sky, as it were. And so now, when I am home in Lawrence, I watch the sun set through the tangled woods at the edge of the great eastern forest that now reaches from the Atlantic to here and a little beyond, almost to the middle of the continent, listening to the coo of doves and the cries of cardinals and birds I cannot name by sound. And I realize that much of my life is a forest. Lawrence is named after Amos Adams Lawrence, a Massachusetts industrialist and abolitionist who financed the establishment of the town along the river by a waterfall that could be used to generate power in fine New England fashion. The New Englanders raised the head of water with a dam and provided mechanical power carried through a system of belts to the town's workshops. Long since, the dam was converted to generating electricity. The power plant was upgraded just a few years ago, in fact, and is owned by friends of ours. It has been in their family for generations. Amos Lawrence financed the town's founding, he himself never visited, so that its inhabitants could vote against slavery for Kansas. Recall that under the Missouri Compromise, territories could vote to become slaveholding or free states. Hence, free state, which is seen everywhere and is the name of a fine microbrewery with a brew pub in an old building on Massachusetts Street, which would be called Main Street in any other classic 19th century downtown. Long before it was mobbed by disturbingly shiny college students, however, Lawrence was a settlement in the Israeli sense of a self-conscious means to a certain form of dominion and rejection of another form of political economy. 
The Missouri Compromise, though a masterpiece of politics, was flawed by the uncomfortable fact that those who have fled or died cannot vote. In an evilly logical effort to reduce the numbers of opposing voters, partisans and opponents of slavery began terrorizing and killing one another in the era aptly known as Bleeding Kansas, sometimes thought of as the true start of the Civil War. John Brown lived and fought near here before heading back east to get himself and his sons killed at the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. The mascot of the University of Kansas, Jayhawk, is neither a real bird. For some reason I had thought it was a small occipiter, like a Cooper's hawk, that hunted jays, nor entirely innocent. Jayhawking was Kansas slang for raids into slaveholding Missouri, and until a recent outbreak of historical consciousness, the annual football game between the universities of Kansas and Missouri was called the Border War. Well after the Civil War had begun in organized earnest, a Missouri partisan named Quantrell raided Lawrence with the stated goal of leaving no man or boy alive and no house standing, and he almost succeeded. So, like I said, Lawrence has always been a meaningful place, not just lost riders, but abolition and damn Yankees and Jayhawks, the theft of horses and massacres and retaliations and signal fires over the hills before the telegraph line, all of which has somehow, if bizarrely, been converted into sports and suburban comfort, for which intellectuals like me are insufficiently grateful. A real estate agent once told me that Lawrence had been voted the second least stressful place to live. What could that possibly mean? In springtime, as it is now, Lawrence is beautiful, rivaling Atlanta's Druid Hills where I grew up. Every culture of which I've ever heard has festivals, feasts that punctuate the year, mark the passage of time. In my tradition, as I speak, it's Eastertide. As an aside, many of my interlocutors are anthropologists of the contemporary that crowd has pretty much abandoned the effort to define culture in the abstract, using it merely as a placeholder. That's wise, I think. But I cannot resist playing. Maybe feast days, like Easter, provide as good a definition of a culture as any. A group of people that marks time by eating together, not just when they have plenty of food, have killed something big and howl and yammer with joy like my beloved coyotes. So how did my family keep this feast as the communion rite enjoins? This was our first Easter celebration without children, much less the Easter Bunny, in 26 years. They called, of course, but still. For just the two of us, I wanted to exert myself a bit. I wanted to celebrate this place, as well as this time, in which we find ourselves situated. And there are many things she should not eat. Sugars, alcohol, red meats. So I needed to be mindful of that. We went to church early. Amy loves a simple rite, and fewer people is a plus, as COVID remains a concern. I miss serious music and people who know how to sing, but I'm high church by nature. For breakfast, I took some local eggs, huge things, from pasture-raised hens. I got the eggs at Leeway Butcher, founded by Lee and Kay Meisel. Lee is Hunkapapa Sioux, a trained butcher from North Dakota. He came to Lawrence to get a business degree at Haskell Indian Nations University and stayed. Leeway Butcher has won countless awards, been on food and wines list of best butcher shops in America, and so forth. About Haskell. In the late 1800s, Dudley Haskell was the son of an early Lawrence family, popular for playing that newfangled game, baseball. He got himself elected to Congress, became chairman of the Committee on Indian Affairs, and wrangled the money to get several schools built, one in Lawrence, which ultimately became Haskell Indian Nations University. As the name suggests, Haskell served students from Indian nations across the country. Dudley's elder brother, John, the smart one, was an architect who designed many notable buildings in the early days of statehood, 
including part of the Capitol and the very beautiful Douglas County and Chase County courthouses. Beat the eggs frothy and added fresh thyme, the Swiss cheese Amy loves, a bit of pepper. I coated a pan in good butter and poured the eggs in slowly. I cooked them very slowly, on low heat, and let a crust form on the bottom. To eat, we lifted the eggs out of the buttery crust. We also had blanched asparagus and some raw tomatoes. I got multi-grain and sourdough bread from a local bakery called Wheatfields. The bread is baked in a 25-ton round brick oven that bulges through the wall of the place and out onto the sidewalk. The oven was manufactured in Barcelona and built by hand on site by a Spanish artisan. The oven burns local hardwoods and was first fired in 1995. The bread is fantastic. To be festive, we also had pastries. My memory is already hazy. I think there might have been an almond croissant, a pommier, and a Danish, maybe some sort of tart or a little pecan pie. Not all of those, but it doesn't matter much. It's all lovely and a traditional treat for our family. To work off breakfasts and besides, it was too soon to start cooking dinner. We went on a long walk in the local wetland and waterfowl reserve. The weather was cool and raining. We had the place largely to ourselves and the birds. Sent a picture of her mother to Science Girl. They had been bird watching in a wetland in New York the week before. City Wine Market is another great Lawrence store, fast becoming an institution. The owners, Steve and Jamie, serious but not too serious to be fun wine guys, have become friends. Once I went in and they were listening to one of my podcasts. What I call the wine store, though I mostly buy beer, is in a little strip mall maybe a mile from my house. It's a sideshow in a big, prosperous suburban intersection with an astonishing range of services that bourgeois families require. Maybe sometime I should talk about that. Sticking with a little strip mall for now, though, I use almost every store rather frequently. A good frame shop for photo projects, a very solid and utterly typical Chinese takeout, and glory days, a pizza joint owned by my buddy George. I always get one of his pizzas on my return to Lawrence from wherever. It has become a little tradition. The same strip mall has a high-cal but delicious and wildly popular breakfast restaurant, part of a local chain, called The Big Biscuit. It's sinful, of course. By way of example, I struggled not to order a deep-fried chicken breast with melted cheese on a giant biscuit, the whole thing slathered in sausage gravy. Seize the day. People of all ages, ethnicities, classes, and, it must be admitted, shapes and sizes, work and eat there. It gives one hope, really, for our republic, if not our waistlines. It's friendly. They let you write while you are eating and after you are done, and bring coffee until you leave. Two doors down from the biscuit is the utterly fascinating J&S Coffee, owned by another Steve. I think it's a public service. I'm not the only writer who works there, and lots of people hold a table or even a booth for hours on the strength of a latte or some goofy concoction. I try to tip big to compensate. Job interviews, local artists, teens trying to find their way, conversations about relationships, unsurprisingly, but oddly many about religion, wedding plans, various groupings of old folk, learning disabled adults who take turns reading out loud, Spanish, of course, but also Serbians, Germans, Chinese, Arab women modestly dressed, young parents with babies, joggers, guys with expensive road bikes, cops, a muscular bald guy who always wears a nice dress shirt and drives a big black Maserati, KU professors, high school and KU students, particularly around exams, 
Some folks who seem not quite homeless, lots of tattoos. A little confession. I've gone to late breakfast, written and drunk coffee for a few hours, moved over to JNS, written more and drunk more coffee until I couldn't take it anymore. Then I stopped in at City Wine Market to say hi to Steve or Jamie and buy something to drink while the sun goes down and the grill heats up. Like the song says, please don't tell anyone. I don't do this very often. A suburban movable feast? Perhaps Paris is a movable feast to be carried through life. And surely suburbia in its repetitions seems to move or only looks like it is moving, much as the same thing in a different location. But for me, at least, the sense of being right there, epitomized by oysters and white wine after a day of work, is what is important, even, maybe especially, in situations less glamorous than the left bank after the war. I also think that is a great deal of what photography should do, but does not do enough in some tension with painting, but I digress. Back to City Market. Steve and Jamie started carrying high-end Italian stuff, which Amy loves, so that was my basic idea for this feast, a really special pasta. I started with some faella linguini from Campania, near Naples. Incredible semolina, ultra, ultra traditional. It's cut with a 19th century bronze die, so the noodle is not perfectly smooth. The slightly round surface holds the sauce better. Really, I'm not making this up. There are no instructions on the package. If you need to ask... San Marzano is a kind of tomato, and a place, a small growing region, also in Campania. The tomato can be grown anywhere, and most tomatoes sold as San Marzano's are. But a San Marzano from the volcanic soil of San Marzano is not just intense, but somehow bright. So, I got some real San Marzano's lovely weekend. I also wanted meat, ideally lamb. Pasha lamb. But Leeway Butcher did not yet have lamb. So I got a beautiful ribeye from Creekstone Farms, a Kansas and Iowa group that provides beef and pork to high-end restaurants across the U.S. and internationally. Here's what I did, in little real order, to please myself and with luck my wife on Easter Sunday afternoon. Sauce. What? No garlic? The dear woman doesn't keep this place stocked. I'd just gotten back from the mountains, never occurred to me to check. I ran out, got garlic, and very lightly sautéed a bit finely chopped, to suffuse a little olive oil. Not much. Take the tomatoes and crush them by hand. Wash your hands very well and do not wear a white shirt. Add to the olive oil along with some fresh basil. Touch of black pepper. Cook just a little. This is not an all-day reduced complex sauce. Fresh, bright, light. For the pasta, do this when you're ready to eat it, depending on if you're doing courses and so forth. Boil a lot of water with a fair amount of salt. Do not add olive oil. The whole point is getting the sauce to adhere to the noodle. That's why you have these rough cut noodles. Watch like a hawk. When the noodles are just this side of al dente, drain and add to the saucepan and finish in the sauce. Served, topped with the best parmesan you can get. I made a quick salad, cool, crisp, green, for contrast with the pasta's warm, soft, red, baby arugula, pear, and cucumber. Fresh parsley, pity the garden isn't in yet, olive oil, white pepper, touch of sea salt, and Meyer lemon to remember the California boy. Simple blanched green beans with sea salt, olive oil, and a lot of fresh dill, a favorite of our eldest. 
I wanted to really taste the steak. I mean, Coldstone Farms. So, just black pepper and some Worcester sauce. Let it sit, get nice and warm. In general, try to avoid putting a cold piece of meat on, a, on the grill. Normally, I use a lot more spices in the dry rub. Sear the steak on a very hot grill to crust. Salt afterward for more crunch. Get the steak off pretty fast. Sometimes I let it rest in indirect heat, overdo it a little, and I'm annoyed with myself. This time, however, I went in another direction and cooked the steak quite low and slow on and covered by grilling sheets, somewhere between sous vide and grilling. I left it pretty rare and dried it on direct heat for a few seconds. I also roasted a red pepper for fun and color. While slow grilling the steaks, I had a decent IPA. In keeping with the local theme, it should have been Call River Roller, brewed by Fields and Ivy. Off the top of my head, I can think of five microbreweries in Lawrence, and Fields and Ivy may be my favorite. I'm told they have their own fields, and one of their beers is made with Silvermine, a corn variety developed in the first decade of the 20th century. But mostly, I drink their double IPA, named after the call. That said, it's been a few weeks, and it might have been Cigar City Brewing's Florida Man a big, hoppy beer named after the world's worst superhero. Because she doesn't eat red meat anymore, I decided to make chicken fingers from scratch. I'm not sure I've ever made chicken fingers, as opposed to heated them up for kids. I started with boneless, skinless chicken tenderloins. I wasn't quite sure what the loin on a chicken was. I thought it was just marketing, so I looked it up. It's in fact a thing, the piece under the breast muscle, against the breastbone always tastier next to the bone. I soaked the chicken tenders in milk. I'd always heard that one should use buttermilk, which is supposed to remove the metallic taste. How do I know this? Memory is such a mystery. And who has buttermilk? Then I dredged the tenders in all-purpose flour, black pepper, bit of paprika. I got out my wok and added more oil than I may have ever used. Safflower or peanut oil, which will get hot, not olive oil, which has too low a smoke point. I used a side burner on the grill while the steaks were going, and who cares if some oil spatters on the deck. Do not forget, like I did, to pat dry after you drain. Ideally, serve immediately. Speaking of deep frying, which I rarely do, when we were just starting out, we spent a year in Belgium right after law school. We went skiing a couple of times, rented little apartments, which often advertised pas de frites, no fryer for making pommes frites, which we call french fries. Pommes frites are crazy important for Belgians. On Sundays, Belgian college kids go to their parents' houses for roast chicken and frites. Sometimes you see small children sent to the local stand to get frites for the family dinner since they were bothered to make it home. With dinner, I had a good but hardly extravagant Italian red. Like everything in wine and most things in Italy, it's complicated, but basically a Super Tuscan is an Italian wine that didn't fit the traditional classification system because made with Bordeaux grapes. Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, maybe some Cabernet Franc. Turns out French grapes do just fine in sunny Italy. Sometimes there are Italian grapes too, notably Sangiovese, the traditional star of Tuscany, and of Chianti. But not always. Anyway, the wine was good, as Jamie promised. That was a lot of food, so we postponed dessert. In due course, we had cocoa-dusted Spanish almonds. Okay, maybe coated in a bit of chocolate and then dusted. So a little sugar. It was Easter. They were lovely with the last of the wine. And that was the feast this year in this place. 
This has been Intermittent Signal. Tonight's episode was Keeping the Feast in Lawrence, Kansas. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm David Westbrook. Until next time, be well.